0: This is the Make America Grape Again podcast, produced and recorded by Cody Burkett, the Arizona wine monk. In this podcast, we explore wines from all 50 states in the United States of America. Welcome to another episode of the Make America Grape Again podcast. I'm your host, Cody Burkett, CSW. I'm here with Greg Gonerman of Laramita Cellars. Today we're talking Iowa. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the uh, Iowa scene when you were uh, passing through? Well, we only visited a few wineries.
1: Uh, one was Tassel Ridge, and that's what we're sampling today. You know, it, unlike Arizona, Iowa really doesn't have a you know one or more you know wine regions. It really the wineries are kind of scra- scattered around the uh, the state. So the one that we visited was Tassel Ridge. And uh, this white, Candle Glow White, was one I thought was, was a, a nice example of an Iowa wine, so it's the one we're sampling
0: today. So the Iowa Kendall Glow White is a blend of La Crescent, Brianna, and Edelweiss, which I may or may not be pronouncing correctly. Grown in Mahaska County? Is that how it's pronounced? You, you got me. I don't know. In Leighton, Iowa. So this vintage was bottled in 2016. So
1: really, Iowa, like most of the Midwest, it's it's not really the ideal place for, for viticulture, conventional viticulture with European varietals. So they use a lot of, they grow a lot of hybrids. And that's, you know, that's what's in this white, three different hybrid whites. And uh, uh, that's, I, I, it, it, for me, I think the hybrid whites, uh, they, they drink quite well. Uh, sometimes the hybrid reds uh, don't. The,
0: but you and I had that really good... Uh, mar, it was Marquette. Marquette. We're, it was Marquette from... Uh, New Hampshire. Yeah, the Fuchim, I was, I was solid. Hill winery. It was a good one. So there are some nice hybrid wines. And La Crescent I've had before, I actually had for this podcast, actually, on the Vermont episode, was a amber wine, spontaneous fermentation, uh, or a quote-unquote natural wine from um, Iapetus Cellars in vermont that was absolutely lovely now we get to have it as a white well i get to have it as a white you didn't have the other one unfortunately Mm -hmm. (laughs) so tassel ridge uh was one of the wineries we
1: visited last christmas of last year but it was the biggest winery i saw in iowa probably one of the biggest in in the midwest it's a very large facility a very modern facility i was very impressed with that and uh, after sampling the wines i i just happened to have the chance to meet the uh owner Uh, Bob Worson. And he was uh, very gracious and uh, offered me some really good advice on marketing wines and selling wines. The Iowa wine scene differs from that in Arizona because they really don't sell wine to restaurants. There's really no interest in restaurants in Iowa to serve Iowa wines. So their primary outlet is actually at retail. And uh, Bob told me, uh, I forget how many hundreds of different retail settings they have their wines placed in. He's He's been very successful with that. But let's talk more about this wine, this blend of three different hybrid
0: whites. It's got a sort of a yeasty citrus character on the nose. Definitely. Very prominent. Very citrus, very, very fruity nose. Almost a creamy character, too. Citrus, a little bit of almost pineapple on the palate. Very tropical.
1: Um, Very nice. Very crisp, good acidity. Yeah, I could see this. The, The back label says to pair it with fish or chicken Lightly seasoned pork, and I think that's... that's
0: yeah, I, I could see this was sort of like a Hawaiian luau-themed meal. Actually, that sounds quite good. You know, have your, your slow-roasted pork with the pineapple over the eyes. Yep. How the pineapple is staying over the eyes while it's being turned on the spit, I don't know, but that's, that's not my problem to figure out. <laughs> <laughs> There's been this discussion in part of this Twitter group that I'm in, uh, focusing on um, different wines. It's called uh, Wine Studio. Wine for Wine Studio is actually featured in the last episode that I recorded, which will obviously be the last episode that aired before this one, uh, or airs, will air. I always get in that time travel tense trouble (laughs) recording these this far in advance. But there was a discussion whether uh, hybrid is kind of a dirty word.
1: It it, it has been, and it shouldn't be, you know um, – for, for me, the, the only downside to hybrids is so many of the hybrid reds have a little bit of a strange medicinal or herbaceous quality, but uh, th- there's no reason wine drinkers should be uh, um, you know, staying away from hybrid wines.
0: There, there's a lot of good hybrid wines out there. Yeah, and we've encountered a few, both you and I personally, and also over the course of this podcast. Uh, um, so the, the, the discussion that they were having at one point was, uh, you know, maybe we should change the, the term to mixed heritage varietal. Yeah, well, I it's, which it's a nice thought, but you know, uh,
1: there I think there is a there should be there should remain a distinction between uh, a cross or a hybrid uh, like Symphony is a cross. it's one yeah. hundred uh, percent Vinifera, but uh, it's a cross, and sometimes people refer to it as a hybrid. And maybe I'm a bit too
0: pedantic, but I no, I, I'm with uh, you. It's yeah. it's not a hybrid. It's a, it's a cross. Is this your first Iowa wine? This is. Yeah. I was planning originally. Um, I don't know if you remember Casimir's World Wine Bar in yeah. Scottsdale. Mm-hmm. Uh, on their menu, they had a Iowa Saval Blanc. Oh. And so my plan was, after I passed the CSW test, well, the, the plan came into my head literally three seconds after I realized, oh, thank God I passed. Because <laughs> if not, my plan was to get tequila. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: Good plan, too. Yeah. It's
0: you- like, okay, I need to blot this memory out of my mind. How do I reboot the hard drive tequila? Sounds good. So you passed. So but- I passed. And so my thought was, well, I'm going to go to Casimir's and I'm going to get a bottle of the Iowa Saval Blanc. Strange way to celebrate, but I'm <laughs> with you. They didn't have it anymore. And oh. this was about a week and a half before the announcement came that, yeah, we're bankrupt and we're closing. Right. And so it's like every other bottle I, I pointed to was like, oh, I'll get a bottle of this. Oh, we don't have that right now either. So I ended up celebrating with uh, an amber wine from Slovenia which was a very good way to celebrate and also again a very geeky way to celebrate but it was you know the th- the fourth the fourth choice. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> like well I've had this before I wanted to try something new.
1: Now, have you had all three of these varietals before? La Crescent, Brianna, and Ice.
0: Just La Crescent. La Crescent, Crescent right. Um, well, I think I tasted a Brianna in a tasting room in Nebraska, but I don't remember much about it. So that, that whole experience was kind of a whirlwind, and I was so taken by that the Chamberson from that tasting room, mm-hmm. which featured in our... Nebraska episode actually because it was the first Chamberson I ever tasted that I actually loved and it was purely I think because of oak choice because mm-hmm. they used uh, French oak as opposed to American oak which so many other people use on Chamberson mm-hmm. and it really worked well with the flavor characters that grape and American oak just clashes with it and all you're tasting is bourbon Yeah, in my opinion yeah. for that grape there are uses for American oak as I that's think that's mentioned in this podcast before but it, it to me i can understand why american oak would just
1: overpower uh a wine like chamberson i think it has uh, it's perhaps a,
0: it's less of a powerhouse it's a bit more delicate it has yeah. some ethereal qualities and that really brought out the those delicate and ethereal qualities and there is also some delicate and ethereal qualities i think in this vintage too mm-hmm. as it's opening up there's some white flower notes too uh acacia blossom maybe or yeah it's 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 opening up quite nicely it still has
1: that uh very distinct uh citrus note on the nose
0: but on the palate is it's uh getting this sort of creamy tropical fruit character which again makes me think hawaiian luau mm-hmm. yeah this is a fun wine so uh, in terms of grapes uh we've met la crescent before in this podcast and i'm 95 sure i did the ceremonial reading from the big red book um, but if I didn't, uh, just so you ref- remember and refresh your memory, La Crescent is a complex hybrid or mixed heritage varietal or whatever we're calling these today. Between St. Pepin and ES-625 from the University of Minnesota. Now for the two grapes that we've not met before. Oh, I just did a little search and it uh,
1: turns out Bri- Brianna is uh, being becoming known as a
0: tropical... Uh, uh, as a tropical fruit wine, then that's probably where most of this flavor is coming from. Because the La Crescent we had didn't have any of those tropical characters. And this is an Elmer Swenson uh, selection. So, yeah, Elmer Swenson. Uh, if it wasn't for him, there there would be no cold weather right. viticulture, really, other than Vidal Blanc everywhere. Yeah,
1: he's, he's definitely responsible for a lot of the the uh, varieties being grown in the Upper
0: Midwest. So Edelweiss, grape number two, is listed in the book as a minor, usefully disease-resistant and winter-hardy, not-too-foxy American hybrid, which is also an Elmer Swenson grape. Minnesota 78 and Ontario hybrid cross obtained by Elmer Swenson. It's a complex hybrid of Vitus labrusca, Vitus vinifera, and Vitus riparia. Uh, Selected as far back as 1955 and released in 1978 at the same time as uh, Swenson Red. Early budding, therefore at risk from spring frosts, vigorous and productive, large loose bunches. The foxy flavors increase with great maturity, so it is best to pick early for wine production. And apparently susceptible to wind damage. Is that something you suffer from out here? Uh, not really. No, we get a lot of wind here
1: on the Wilcox bench in the spring, but you know it may cause a little bit of shatter,
0: but it really isn't a problem for us. Yeah, it's, it's just surprising that this is specifically listed as, or mentioned as uh, prone to wind damage. Hmm. Tassel Ridge is actually mentioned uh, in the Big Red Book here. Producers of varietal wines include Cannon River in Minnesota, Cut Hills and Max Creek in Nebraska, and Snus Hill, Tassel Ridge, and Two Saints in Iowa. According to Swenson et al. 1980, wines are pleasant if the fruit is not picked too late and the wine made semi-sweet. Well, this is most definitely dry wine. It is is quite nice. Uh, Would you like to do the honors of reading about Brianna? Not really. I would too. Aw. That that always happens whenever I ask anybody. (laughs) Gary always goes, no. Usually I'm able to convince Megan to, to drink it now and again. Or to drink it. To I'm not it. drunk. I'm just tired. It's been a very long day of... Uh, crop forcing. Crop at Chir- forcing. At Ranch Vineyards. Uh, so, crop forcing. Oh. Well, okay. Uh, this is
1: totally off topic, but crop forcing is a technique for postponing fruit set and harvest in varieties that require cooler weather to ripen at their best, like Pinot Noir. So, that's one variety here at Chiricahua Ranch Vineyards <laughs> that we crop force. We, uh, we drop all the fruit in the spring and then... Midsummer, we do an aggressive mid-season pruning. Take everything back, just to basically it's wintertime status, leaving it with just a the trunk and the cordon and uh, no green leaves, no greenery at all. And uh, the vine starts growing again, and then it sets fruit later in the year. And uh, this is this is done to produce a, a world-class pinot noir in a place not known for pinot noir. So that's our objective.
0: And it's not off-topic. I mean, these are all cold-weather varietals, too. Yeah. And, and well, they're probably not growing a whole lot of Pinot Noir in Iowa, but... Uh, this is true. It is but a, we're also not growing a whole lot of Pinot Noir in Arizona, either. Are, no, we aren't. We
1: aren't. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, Brianna is listed in the Big Red Wine Book, which is actually Wine Grapes by Jensen's Robinson I should actually give the actual name for it instead of referring to it as the big red wine book all the time. It is listed as a minor but usefully winter hardy and increasingly popular American hybrid. Uh, it is a K Gray and Elmer Swenson 21213 hybrid, which was obtained in 1983 by Elmer Swenson. The reconstruction of the complete pedigree of Brianna, see diagram, which is a fold out diagram like so. Well, you can't see, but. Uh, I'm going to try to find a version of this online to, to post because it is a fascinating diagram. Uh, Cause you can see over here, like Alicante Boucher is tangently related to Brianna. That's, that's unexpected. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it's not a, there are a lot of unexpected things lurking in the pedigree for Brianna that you would not expect. And there are things that you would expect like Muscat Blanc I'm uh, mascot of Alexandria. they They appear here. actually, uh, interestingly enough, they they appear twice in the the family table here for completely different genetic reasons. Concord also as well. so the the family tree of Brianna uh, is a lot like looking at some family trees from medieval Europe mm. in terms of enfolding uh, in on itself a little bit. Right.
1: but the the objective with all of these hybrids, at least those that um, were were developed in the upper Midwest, uh, they need varieties that uh, perhaps are a little bit later bud break, so they're not prone to late spring frost, because the weather is very unpredictable. And they need varieties that ripen very quickly. Uh, they have a very sh- a relatively short growing season, at least from the perspective of a uh, you know from viticulture perspective.
0: So yeah, and it works yeah. obviously. Otherwise, yeah. people for one wouldn't be doing this. Otherwise. So, anyway, to, to sum up, it's Vitis riparia, Vitis Labrosca, Vitis Vinifera, Vitis estivalis, Vitis Linsicumi, Vitis Rupestris, Vitis cinerea, which I may be mispronouncing, and Vitis Berlanderi, all in that gene tree. Selected originally as a table grape in 1989 and then 2001 as a wine grape. And it was named in 2002 by Ed Swanson of Cut Hills Vineyards in Pierce, Nebraska. And I don't know why it's called Brianna the book doesn't say uh it says uh, uh, elmer swinson's daughter i think i found let me go back here uh, it's listed again as cold hardy, susceptible to black rot and petritus bunch rot and highly susceptible to crown gall small to medium-sized compact bunches of thick skinned, large to medium-sized berries again as you mentioned before brianna wines typically have tropical fruit flavors but the grapes, again, need to be picked early enough to avoid increased foxy flavors from the variety's LaBrusca parentage. Uh, citation from Smiley, 2008. So that just amuses me. So from
1: an article online, contrary to popular uh, belief, Brianna is not named after Elmer Swenson's wife or daughter. Ed Swanson said he thought the grape would be a strong and healthy grower and first considered naming it Brian. However, Brian did not seem an appropriate name for a white wine. So Brianna entered the wine world in a more feminine form. Oh, huh. so it's just
0: like a, a good, strong name. Yeah. Well, it's a nice wine, and Tessa Ridge did a nice job with it. So. Yeah, I, I'm quite pleased with this. I'm just kind of wishing I had a luau. Oh, I've got some ribs at home that need to be cooked. I could. Sounds like a good pairing idea. If it was dry rub, it would definitely work. But with the, the St. Louis-style barbecue with the sauce, it might not work as well. Then again, the real true rule of wine pairing is pair what you like to drink with what you want to drink. Sure. So before we we go into the history of Iowa wine, uh, I'd like to touch back on something you alluded to in terms of wine marketing. Because that's something I've actually not really talked about in this podcast is uh, you know, how a wine is marketed and how to go about doing that. And, well, it's, uh, that's, it's an interesting topic, and it, it's something I've had
1: to give a lot of thought to. You know, So many people get into this business thinking, all that I have to do is make really good wine, and then people are going to buy it. It'll sell itself. I don't have to work. But no, no matter how good your wine is, you really have to market it aggressively. You, you've got to work to sell it. It's not easy. It's not like there's a shortage of good wine out there. There's a lot of great wine from all over the world available to retailers and consumers. So, you've got to make good wine and then you've got to sell it. You've got to connect with retailers and consumers. Starting out, it's really about both quality and the relationship with the consumer or the retailer, and uh, it can be a challenge. It takes a lot of work. Even for a small winery, you could easily have a full-time job for a marketing person. So, as I mentioned earlier, Bob Worson at um, Tassel Ridge, he's the owner, he gave me some excellent advice on how to sell at retail because they're dependent on retailers he's had to give this a lot more thought than than I have and uh, he gave me some really good advice on how to uh, better sell the wines at retail a lot of Arizona wine is either sold at festivals or through tasting rooms um, that seems to be or through the wine club so some sort of direct sale relationship with the consumer seems to be a primary means of uh, selling wine but uh, I think if you're going to grow a winery you need to be
0: looking at all avenues for sales so. Yeah, and he was mentioning that uh, with so many places, the the way that they're doing it is something that would be advantageous to someone looking to grow with uh, the sort of uh, uh, what did you call them? The uh, uh, I don't I'm not sure what they exactly call, but the tags that slip over the top of the box. yeah yeah. So you have
1: you have a a couple different ideas yeah. Bob shared with me. One was to put a shelf, what they call a shelf talker or shelf tag. That is the tag that fits into the concave uh and or, you know place but beneath the on the shelf where you have a price, for example, well, you can put something there that says, you know this, this is a Merlot Cabernet blend or this is great with steak or something like that, but also too, you can use a bottle tag to accomplish the same objective, and um those are great ways to help uh, sell wine, so you've got to do something to make the wine stand out. And, uh, I connect with the consumer.
0: I almost wanted to call that a bottle tie, because <laughs> it's like a, a tie sitting on the bottle, but that's yeah. later, not right. Later, somebody will remind us what the proper name for Yeah, are. probably. Or they won't, and they'll be like, oh, wait, I didn't know that they even had a name. They have a name? <laughs> I, this is opening up nice, and the color is beautiful, too. It's a sort of... Straw gold yellow. It's a little bit deeper in color than what I was expecting from from the bottle. I was expecting something much lighter, and it's. I mean, it is light, but it's just got this really nice, richer hue to it. It's a delicious wine. There's a little little hint of foxiness there from the the hybrid uh,
1: grape, but uh, like I said before, really, it's not so off putting on a white variety. It's
0: no, it's, it's a I think a, a pleasant thing in a white. So according to. Uh, our trustworthy Cattell volume here, Wines of Eastern North America. Sadly, there is no equivalent I've discovered for wineries in the West in terms of history. But this book is uh, wonderful for exploring, like the history of, of viticulture in the Eastern U.S. and the challenges associated with that history, and so on and so forth. According to Cattell, the modern wine industry in Iowa got its start in January 2000 when Ron Mark, Paul Tabor. And Bill Brown formed the Iowa Grape Growers Association. And at that time, there were actually 13 wineries already in Iowa. 11 of them were in uh, a landscape known as the Amana Colonies, which apparently was a religious communal society that originated in Germany and settled in Iowa in 1855. And so there was a native wine law that passed after repeal that allowed them to sell their wines to anyone. The only other two wineries had opened in 1997. That was Mark Somerset Winery in Indianola and Tabor's Family Winery in Baldwin. Bill Brown was a grower but had not yet opened Timber Hill Winery in Lyon. So prior to forming the association, the three men had met to decide what was most needed for Iowa growers and winemakers. Uh, so they decided that favorable legislation... Uh, education was also a basic need. Well, it sounds a lot like arizona we need
1: we need to inform consumers and we need to tweak the laws to allow us to make wine and you know there I think the same story kind of plays out in every state post prohibition you you 've got to every in every state the uh the winemakers and uh, and beer makers have to go through this process of pushing the legislature to make changes to make it easier and make it possible to do business to to sell your your beverages
0: to consumers and
1: uh to build your business
0: yeah and they noticed that there was no help available from iowa state university um so they were able to finally in 2001 get the iowa department of agriculture to get involved and viticultural system was made available at iowa state university by then so again kind of like arizona there really wasn't much in the way of education until the southwest wine center and Mm -hmm. and yavapai got uh started Mm -hmm. In February 2002, the Iowa legislature formed the Iowa Grape and Wine Commission within the Department of Agriculture there and uh, laid a 5% tax on wine to basically fund the research and promotion. And 2003, this group of three finally became known as the Iowa Wine Growers Association, and uh, they created a whole 10-year plan, which really is not listed as to what was this plan because it's, again, a a blurb. Uh, within the history. But apparently there was a lot of people involved in helping to design this plan. Legislators, retailers, people from government, education, vineyards, and wineries. Um, and obviously it worked because uh, by 2008, there were 62 wineries in Iowa. Oh. So it was a, an exponential growth as a result of this. Which, again, again is a similar story to how things have gone in Arizona. From, in the beginning, 4 or 5 to now 80 a hundred depending on who you ask what transformation yeah i really am quite fond of this one uh thank you again greg for bringing this from iowa it was my pleasure and uh you have a few more options for your future episodes so yes greg gonerman has uh was kind enough when he went to iowa I picked, I picked up a few extra bottles,
1: and we'll be drinking those in future episodes. Yeah,
0: so. including a, a Norton, which is going to be
1: really interesting. Uh, Norton is unusual for Iowa because it, it's not in the Midwest. It's not generally grown north of central Missouri because it does need warmer weather. Uh, not warm like we have in Arizona, but warm in relative Midwest terms uh, to ripen at its best. So uh, that, that as far north as Iowa it, wouldn't be expected to ripen completely. But there's a, a producer, and we'll get to that in a future episodes, that's able to produce a, a very nice Norton.
0: So looking so, forward to sampling that with you. I'm looking forward to that too. I'm, I've gotten into Norton as a result of this, and before I was never really fond of it. And Now I've discovered... Uh, Norton is
1: one of my favorite hybrid varieties, and it is a, a, a three-way hybrid. DNA testing has confirmed that. Don't ask me which three varieties, Vinifera and two others. Uh, but...
0: Uh, um, it, it, it I is. know you didn't ask me, but it, it, the book will tell me. Yeah,
1: it is. Uh, they were doing some great things with Norton back in the 1880s in Missouri and making some some really good wine, apparently. And they're now, too, but I, I think maybe they were doing things a little differently back in the late 1800s. So. This is true.
0: Any reason? In here under Cynthia? Because I, I know there's a lot of, and there's some people that still are insistent that Norton and Synthiana are different grapes. I Aren't they just different
1: clones? Of they the are. Same,
0: same Genetically, grape? it's like Primitivo and Zinfandel. Right. But, you know, you've got your hardliners there. That some are saying, it's Primitivo and it's a different thing. But anyway, um, who's in, it doesn't list all three.
1: When was your book written? Because I think that DNA testing was just recent.
0: Um, I think they were in the middle of... This one was 2012. Um, It lists Vitis Estivalis and Vitis Vinifera. I was thinking it has some Labrusca in it. It does list Labrusca as a previous theory. Wow. But uh, it also doesn't say that 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 DNA study disproved... How many different Nortons have you sampled for this series? So far, uh, three. Uh, one of those episodes has not aired yet. That's for season two, and that's a Missouri Norton. Uh, episode one was a Norton from Kentucky. And then episode 43 was a sparkling Norton and Pinot Gris from Oklahoma. <laughs> that uh, That's
1: unexpected.
0: Yeah, it was... It was funky and fun. I, I really dug it. Um, mm. Megan was ambivalent. Uh, James really liked it. And Kim Musket hated it. Mm. She didn't say so on the podcast, but afterwards she's like it's not she, afterwards she's like, Oh thank God we're done with this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you notice those those locations, Oklahoma, Missouri, Kentucky, we're
0: talking lower lower Midwest, yeah. basically. And I know that there's a winery in Maryland that has just planted Norton earlier this year. But there again, you know, it's the mid Atlantic, it's much the- warmer. It's right. We're we're skedaddling into uh rambling on territory yeah. here. Shall we um, we should close. Well, thank you again, Greg. Cheers. Make grape is... Make America Grape Again. Cheers. This was an episode of the Make America Grape Again podcast. Sponsored, produced, and recorded by Cody Burkett, the Arizona wine monk. You can reach us at Podcast at gmail.com on Instagram at at the AZ Wine Monk or on Twitter at CVBurquette. Be sure to also check out our website, makeamericagrapeagainpodcast.com.